listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So in the Zen tradition, there's this, this guy named Dogen. And Dogen Zenji is kind of the formal name. Uh, kind of the father of what we call so, the Soto Zen lineage. And I don't find that this stuff is really that important to figure out who taught whom and so forth. But just for history's sake, Dogen has these great lines about how it is that we awaken that we awaken to what, you might ask. And uh, I think one of the best ways of describing awakening is that we awaken to the truth that is beyond name and form. The truth that is beyond name and form. In other words, that there is a truth that we kind of become aware of, and it's our own deepest truth truth. And the more we become aware of it, the more we recognize that it's not our own, that it's everybody's. It's uniquely shared. We start seeing that it isn't something that we can possess. And so Dogen talks about this in a number of different ways, but there's one saying that I remember really, really stuck with me when I was around I guess five or six years into my relationship with a teacher and a Zen community and so forth. And, you know, so it was right at the point in my practice where I knew enough to be dangerous. Does that make sense? You know, when you, you know, you're, you're kind of a wise idiot, sophomoric, I guess would be the way to <laughs> say that. And, uh, so I, I, I had like an intellectual understanding kind of of where things were going, but the experiential end of things, the um, maybe I could maybe I could say maybe the heart part of it instead of it was lots lots of mind, lots of brain into it, you know, study who said what when and so forth. The heart part wasn't developing as quickly. Uh, they certainly weren't going at the same speed. And it was incredibly instructive because what I got was this line from my teacher that suddenly catapulted heart a little further, all right? And it went something like this. So the translation is loose, but uh, forgive. To study enlightenment is essentially to study the self. And to really study the self we forget the self. And we, when we forget the self, we're enlightened by all things. So I'll say that little mixture again. Zen, or studying awakening, whatever your flavor, whatever flavor you like best, okay? To study awakening is to study the self. And then Dogen says, when we study the self, we end up forgetting the self, and in forgetting the self, we are awakened by all things. And then the next step is the most important of all. When we are awakened by all things, there is 
no enlightenment. In other words, we look at enlightenment as something that is outside of us. We look at awakening as something to get. We look at awakening as something that is born into our experience when in fact it is exactly what is unborn that is our awakening. Now, if you try to get your mind around that, you will spend a lot of time in pretty significant frustration. It's not an intellectual exercise. It is a, an exercise in just being. Just being. It's the source of all things that we begin to tap into consciously that awakens us naturally. We begin to see that we are not only that space from which all things are born, but we are also precisely what is born at the same time, both those two things. And when we walk through the world with that kind of recognition, there's a profound peace. There's a profound peace that we recognize. It's, I'll, I'll say that again, it's, it's recognized, recognized. And it's recognized as something that's not here. And it's not here. It's not just in the heart, it's not just in the mind. It's both and all things at once. And we still enjoy just the right amount of salt on our eggs in the morning. It's not about floating around in la-la land, you know. I'm awake, I'm awake. <laughs> or at least if that's what it is, I don't want any part of that. I'm certainly not going to like try to teach anybody that. That just, to me, is a waste of oxygen. <laughs> if, we're in that, if we're in that space where we kind of just drift off, you know. Oh, everything's okay. Well, of course everything's okay. Everything is so okay. Everything is so perfect as it is that it gives us an infinite number of chances to bless and be blessed. And sometimes we bless by holding the line. We don't attach to it, but we can hold it. We can meet it. Someone's pushing us around. Maybe the most compassionate and wise thing we could do is say, stop that. Maybe the most compassionate and wise thing we could do would be to let it happen a little bit so we can study the self. Because when we study the self, we then can forget the self. And when we forget the self, we can then be enlightened by all things. And then when we're enlightened by all things, we realize there's no enlightenment. Everything just is one giant expression of the cosmic giggle. <laughs> Literally. Everything is just that one giant expression of the cosmic giggle or the cosmic cry that your little baby girl gives. <laughs> 
I'll tell you a quick story on that, because I, I, I still will try to weave this into the second part of my talk, but it was the most remarkable thing I've ever experienced in my life, is watching my wife deliver into this world a new being on Friday night at about 12.06 a.m. Saturday, actually, so Saturday morning very early. Four weeks early, this tiny little thing who is so well proportioned. She's like 18 inches long, so she's like long, but she's tiny and no fat on her. So she looks like a cross between, uh, you know, a supermodel and ET, kind of just this <laughs> beautiful, beautiful little beast. Yeah. And so I, uh, I, I just, I can recall that whole experience um, and being with my wife as she as she literally met a thousand divine knives and just trying to be right there with her and I can't tell you how much this practice helps in childbirth <laughs> uh, but watching watching my wife in the final stages of the delivery just push with all her might, there was still a smile on her face as she knew what was going on. We agreed prior that her job was to be really there for it. And so she decided against, well, this certainly isn't what I would have done, but she decided no pain medication. I want to see what people felt a hundred years ago. I want to be there for it. And so she was. And there was, there was only one expletive uh, that she said that absolutely cracked me up. Um, at one point, I was just kind of rubbing her back, and I said, honey, are you okay? And she said, I'm fine. Give me some fucking ice chips. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, girl. You got it. I'll give you those. All right. You know, here are the ice chips. You know. <laughs> anyway as she is in the final stages of the birth and we can see this little head crown and suddenly the baby comes out and I'm standing and I'm right there. I've got one arm behind my wife's head and the other arm in the crook of her knee and I'm watching as this happens and the baby comes out, looks at the doctor who we, act, we just love to death and he, she looks at the doctor, eyes wide open, looks at me and then screams <laughs> as if to say, I am now born. I am born. And we get that chance every single second. Let's sit. So birth is something that we can play with constantly in our life. Not just the birth of a being that I will forever remember, uh, but the, at least the, the birth of my daughter. I will never forget that as, as long as I live. Uh, but her birth was a reminder to me 
of the conjoined twin of that experience, which is death. And I know that at some point I will have to let go of baby Cade. I will not, I will not be able to have her forever. Either I will die or she will die. I will not be able to have, I don't even have her. I'm her father. I'm in relationship with her. In fact, we're never not in relationship. We're in relationship with all things all the time, which is why I was giving Steve grief about uh, relationship. It's the one thing we can count on <laughs> is that we are in relationship. We are in relationship. All right? But the relationships that we have, the relationships th that we have, we can also infuse with the understanding and the knowing, spiritual knowing, that they can't last. And you might look at this and go, okay, that is really not the right thing to be thinking about, right, when you give birth to a child. But it's this very magical reminder that this time we get to share together is fleeting. How do we make it count together? Cade and me, Allie and me, Allie, Cade and me. You guys, everybody else in the bigger community. How do we make this count? Knowing that it's all temporary. Birth and death are as simple as uh, an inhalation is a birth and an exhalation is a death of that breath. Turning 43 years old will be the death of my 42-year-oldness, right? The death is always right there next to birth. Always, always. It's inextricably linked. And so for us to begin to kind of swim in that space of, wow, it's all temporary, including me, I am temporary, it puts our attachments in context. Every one of the things we, we were talking about that we want to let go of, let's say. All it is, is a vow. It's a vow. And then a series of choices that either take us closer to fulfilling that vow or keeping that vow diluted. One of the most difficult attachments to let go of is our nonsense. All the stuff in us that really doesn't matter. That's usually the stuff we really, really cling to. We really, really cling on to the stuff that doesn't matter, especially the sense of being a self. A self that is either too much or too little. When we do this, when we cling to a self that is too much or too little, too busy or too much of a couch potato, too obsessive, too compulsive, 
or too apathetic, too, 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 you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it happens to be that we want to let go of. That is what allows ego to keep our Buddha nature, our awakening at bay. All of those, all of those qualities, the, the nonsense that we, cling, that we cling to is exactly what keeps our Buddha nature at bay. It, 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 it keeps it from being recognized. It veils awakening from our sight. <laughs> to borrow a line from Rumi. So, one of the things that can be so helpful in this process is getting really clear, really, really clear about what things we resist and what things we grasp, okay? Or instead, if you don't want to use the word grasp, sometimes it works real well. What things do we hang on to, okay? What do we hang on to? I would be lying if I told anyone in this room that whether my baby daughter lives or dies doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. Of course, of course it matters. In the small sense, it really, really matters. But in the big sense, she's going to die anyway. So am I. So are all of us in this room. So how is she going to live? How am I going to support that? And if I think about that too much, I start to sweat. <laughs> Wanting to live forever. This, this dumb thought just keep in my mind for, for several weeks, like what you mm -hmm. said. Yes, so that's, that's okay. What happens is when we have a separate sense of self, right? When I believe that I'm in here and you're out there, I'm automatically in a position where I want to preserve this. And the things that I let, let in to this little space here are daughter, wife. Dog, house, car, job, my brains, my livelihood, infinite smile, sangha, right? You know what I mean? And we want to hold it all and maintain it and be absolutely vigilant in making sure that we care for all these little things so that they won't deteriorate or decay. And yet, the one thing that every single sacred teaching tells us is it's gonna decay. So how then do we change that river? How then do we stop the tides, so to speak? You can't, but as Swami Ananda says, you can learn to surf. We cannot change the flow of the ocean, but we can learn to surf. I, I spoke about this a couple weeks back. And that's what we do in, in practice. We start learning that while I can't maintain everything that I would love to be able to maintain and control, while I can't necessarily fix a relationship that I'd love to fix, or I can't, you know, I can't seem to just kind of slow down and calm down, I'm always so dang busy, you know, as a way of avoiding things perhaps or whatever. Well, all that stuff may be there the work of slowing down kind of automatically starts to shift that. It starts to help us recognize that we are always and perpetually infinite as we are. This helps us see how beautiful things can be even when they're not pretty. This allows us to walk into the fire knowing that we're going 
to die and that those around us are going to die, that we will experience unimaginable loss. But that as long as we can accept that that's what will happen, that loss will occur, that more birth will happen and more death will happen in each moment for us as individuals, as groups, as families, when we can kind of be in that space and rest there, we start losing our nonsense. And when we lose our nonsense, we can become awakened by all beings. Fear starts dissipating. We no longer care if immortality is in our midst or that we can get it. We no longer care because we recognize that we are already a divine expression of spirit, as is. And while this body may die, it will be born in some other configuration. My baby girl, the atoms that make up the cells, or the molecules that make up the cells, that make up her organs, that make up her body, they've been around since the Big Bang. They've reconfigured several times, as have yours and mine. But we start getting this sense of infinity that's present with us, even though our mind would like to collect a lot of nonsense to keep that whole thing at bay. And so what our meditation is designed to do is to get you to realize that, oh my goodness, there's nothing I can do, nothing I can do to hang on to all the stuff I really want to hang on to. I better learn how to surf. I can't know everything. Damn it. Right? Think about what you would be without your stories. Another way of describing not nonsense might be stories. What would you be? What would you be if you no longer had all those memories of past, past pain or past wrong done against you or something? What would you be? It's a fascinating thing to do. What would you be if you didn't have all the things you wanted to have? What would you be without your goals for the future? What would you be? It's not that these goals are bad, and it's not that these memories are superfluous to who you are. It's not that, it's not that any of that stuff isn't very, very real, but our relationship to it can keep us from awakening. It can become stuff we cling to, and everything we cling to becomes baggage. And baggage gets heavy. It weighs us down. It keeps us from being all that we always have been. It keeps us from resonating with space. So when I say learning to surf, what I really mean is, can you look at your relationship with the things that are born into your experience? 
Can you let go of them? Don't deny them. Don't push them away. Don't grab after them. Don't turn them into nonsense or baggage. But can you be intimate with every single thing? Intimate in a way that allows you to meet your experience with tenderness, with love, with compassion. Best way to get in the way of all that is to judge. Just judge things, evaluate, categorize, compartmentalize. That's where the mind is running amok. When we start to study the self, we study the mind. When we study the mind, we start recognizing that its whole raison d'etre, its whole reason for being, is to give us something to attach to. It's to give us baggage. That's how the mind works. And when we see through that, it loses its inertia. When we no longer identify with what is born in the mind, we wake up. When we no longer identify with thought, when we no longer create a story around our thoughts and then cling to it, turn it into nonsense, when we no longer adhere closely to feelings, I want more of that, I'm jonesing for more of that, when we, or I don't want any of that. When we stop doing that, we just start actually being right there for all of it as it is, we open. And we surf. We hang ten. We ride that wave beautifully, effortlessly because we are the ocean in that moment we are the ocean so here's to birth and death So are there any rules about breathing or are there any things that you should, should or should not think? Okay, ready? This is going to really be troublesome. Are you ready? There are no rules and whatever is going on in your mind is absolutely perfect to help you awaken. Okay? Because if you're having obsessive thoughts, all you have to do is become very curious about the, those obsessive thoughts. That's studying the self. If you have absolutely non-obsessive thoughts, study those non-obsessive thoughts. And that's how we study the self. That's how we study our mind. Okay? And when you study the mind, when you give it that attention, suddenly something opens. What is it that is watching the mind? The mind can't watch itself. What is it that is watching the mind? What is it that is curious about the thoughts? That's something huge. It's infinite in nature. And that big self is something all of us have at our disposal every moment of the day. It's precisely where thought is born from. It is what is unmade, unregulated, uncreated. 
and all of our thoughts come from that place. That in you which watches the thoughts is that openness. And so we practice that way. So as you're sitting there following your breath and suddenly obsessive thoughts come into your head, great, perfect, watch them, okay? And as you watch them, you'll see that they no longer have as much power. Having said that, I happen to be really, really uh, in favor of seeing therapists, good ones. I think a good therapist helps you do exactly what I just said. A good therapist helps you demystify the mystery of the mind, and then we're no longer afraid of it. And then this work tends to take you to the next step, which is now that you're no longer afraid of the mind, let's let go of it entirely. Don't negate it. I'm not talking about being mindless. I'm talking about being so full of your mind that you are conscious and you walk through this life consciously. That becomes a gift, not only for yourself, but for the whole. And if you want to stay afterwards, I can talk more, more about this, but uh, that's what meditation is. Meditation is kind of an organized opportunity for us to watch our mind. And then when we keep watching our mind and keep watching our mind and keep, there's suddenly a moment where it's like, wait, what's watching? Very good. Here we go. Yeah. So, so stay after. We can chat for a moment. Okay. It's a great question. Yeah. Why, why does our society have such an aversion to to anything related to death? Talking about death, watching death. Is it because it's ego and ego's afraid to die? Ego realizes that when the body dies, it dies. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. I think the ego, the ego senses its mortality, and um, our culture, I think, happens to be highly ego-driven. It's about gain. Okay, it's not about acceptance. It's about gain. Well, two things I would say is number one, I think having a culture that is all about gain can be really healthy for a spiritual practice because you suddenly have dynamism and vitality. I have never seen one person come through these doors that doesn't have something really juicy about them in their dynamism and vitality. They're feeling something there and they're curious, right? And that's all, that's all we need. That said, what happens is this work is designed to take that dynamism and vitality, that egocentrism, and really, really turn up the heat so much that it boils off. And what's left is something without nonsense. Well, something without nonsense, when we start really looking at that which is true and real in all of our lives, it has nothing to do with how good your underarms smell. It has nothing to do with what kind of car you might drive. It has nothing to do with which country you might conquer. It has not, right? So uh, awakened teachings taken to their extreme can either, they can leave you just kind of in, in, you know, sitting on the cushion in a cave, giggling the whole time, or uh, they can take you the, the other direction, which is you believe the way I believe or else I will kill you. Okay, in the middle is what I think the United States has to offer. 
I think the United States or Western culture, I should say, has to offer because we can infuse these, these teachings of infinity with the teachings of dynamism and they're not separate. They're not separate. So I think it's a very, very unique thing, un, un, unhindered by the, the, uh, the, the trappings of tradition. I think some really cool stuff starting to happen in the world spiritually. And it's fun to be a part of it. It's fun to be a part of it. I don't know if that answered your question at all, Brad. I kind of just went off there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> as, as, long, as long as you enjoyed it. Sir, yeah, I yeah. Did. I did. did you <laughs> well, that's what matters. Exactly. That's what matters. But did I answer your question? Why did it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The expression, you don't find an expression. The fact that when I die, the infinite's still there. That, mm -hmm. that doesn't do it for me. I can see this practice being about being strong enough to face the things in your life. Yep. But I don't see this thought of some infinite thing out there helping me with that. It's, it's not an infinite thing because it's not a thing. Okay. It's what gives birth to things. Okay. So that which gives birth to things is never not there. And it's, you can call it God, or you can, but that limits it, I think. Well, but why should that bring peace? Because it's it is actually the the non-activity. It's it's it, in fact its quality is peace. Its quality is joy. Its quality gets really specific and turns into this thing we call love. Okay, and we tap into it every once in a while. We get kind of a blast of it, right? It's like when, when the veil like moves away and wham, there it is, and then we push the veil back because the ego gets really afraid of having that be its central, but you can't handle it. So what it'll do is it'll fight it tooth and it'll give, it will throw everything it possibly can in the way of that realization because that realization means that the ego is no longer in the central, it's no longer in control. It's no, long, no longer the driver, because there's, there's not even a bus, okay? There's no, nothing to drive, and it freaks out at that point. I, I, I really like using the metaphor of the stage, okay? What the ego does is it's an actor on this stage. Sometimes we call it the stage of mind. And it, it pontificates, and it says this, and it, it does whatever it can to keep the illusion of that fourth wall up. You know how sometimes on the stage, it's like we're, we're like looking into these actors' lives, right? And they're acting as if there's a fourth wall between the audience and them. The ego is doing that. It's doing everything it can to deliver its messages with, with conviction, right? But yet there's something in us that can actually watch the ego do that little dance. There's something in our experience that allows us to watch our experience. It, in other words, it watches our resistance. It watches, it's aware of our jealousies. It's aware of our happiness. It's aware, what is that? And that's, that level of consciousness is that, that which can watch the mind that's what we start doing in meditation. That's when we study the self. And studying the self, suddenly that thing that studies the self forgets the self. I'll use different words. We study the ego to forget the ego. And when we forget the ego, we are awakened by all things. 
ego does not want to be forgotten. So every, every bit of your, your marvelous question right there was basically, and your ego is going to hate to hear this. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> says who? <laughs> gotcha. No, but you see what I'm saying? It's like the ego will evaluate and decide. Ah, mm, and, you know, right? And it's not that it's bad. It still, just like everything else, is a divine expression of the infinite. So you're not saying, um, don't worry, when you die, you'll be part of the infinite. The infinite's still there. It's uh, just that uh, when you get into this quiet space, its quality is peaceful. I'm saying that space is here now. You're already dead. It's never not here. That fundamental quality is here. Always. It's what keeps your mitochondria doing what they're supposed to do. It keeps your heart beating. It keeps the stars moving. It just is. There's no... Infinity is infinity. You're part of it. I'm part of it. Right? So when we're in this space of I live now... That's not entirely wrong. It's just that it's not the whole story. The whole story involves the infinity, the big self, meeting itself through the small self all the time. And when that happens, our expression and our surfing gets better. We're able to respond skillfully to anything. It's just plugging into something bigger constantly constantly plugging into something bigger than our nonsense i guess that's the best way i could describe it but i'm certainly not talking about a deity or you know not talking about a i mean to say we pray to god is that's the most egotistical thing imaginable because it implies that you're separate from god right and if you're separate from god wow i want to meet you <laughs> you know. Thanks for coming.